her point of view. And the Sufi master said, yes, I think you're right. And person B says her point of view. And the Sufi master reflects and says, yes, I think you're right. And the Sufi master's assistant says to him, Master, you just said uh, A is right, and you also said B is right. And the Sufi master said, you're also right. <laughs> you know, that maybe everybody's right. You know, everybody's right. What do you think it would be like? Let's <laughs> not even go there. I was going to talk about the political situation. We will go there, but not quite yet. Uh, and I wanted you to see that Gina's here. That did you say, Marty, that Gina's here today? I, I didn't. I figured I used up my. <laughs> you didn't. You didn't use up. This is this is Jean, Marty's mother, who's here, and I'm always happy to see you here, Jean. And uh, Jean and I are alumni of the same uh, women's college. In June, I am going back to New York to my 60th college reunion. Is the impossible? And Jean has just got, last year got back from her 75th reunion at the same college. You were the only one, weren't you? That's right. <laughs> and uh, and uh, Jean lives up in her own place in uh, a uh, Quaker community in Santa Rosa. And recently she had a little fall, but she's well and she's here again. So. I just really wanted you to know that. Yay! Yay. What college is it? We went to. There you go. Bonnet. yeah. And, but my, you know, our diplomas, Jean, say Columbia University. They do. And, and then underneath it says Barnard College, because women's <laughs> colleges weren't in their own. They're still like that now. Anyway, okay. Leaving that little soapbox. Uh, <laughs> James asked me to remind you that on Sunday, March 13th, which is a while out from now, he's going to do a day here with Bob Doppelt, who is very, very knowledgeable about climate change. And he hopes that uh, you will think about coming, because it also says bring a friend for free when you pre-register. So if you decide to go to this, register now, bring a friend for free. And uh, the first line of this says, does the doom and gloom of climate change leave you wondering what you can do when you feel helplessness, hopelessness, and anxiety? And probably the answer to that is yes, it does. Uh, it's very hard to think about the fact that the, the outlook for 30 years from now is not good. I heard uh, some news yesterday from uh, Florida where someone who was a journalist had lost his job because he had talked clearly about climate change and he'd gotten the word that he was not supposed to talk about that in Florida because the sea is rising and you can't not talk about it. So, um, and I think there is, uh, I think there is, a t I have it myself, you know, I, it took me a long time to read the book uh, This Changes Everything by Naomi Klein. It's a very hard book to read about climate change because you can't stand it reading it. You, you finished it. Yeah, it's a, it's a hard slog through because it's very hard to think about. But really, we have to think about it and you get to come two for the price of one. Uh, so this is on the 13th. Okay, we did that. Okay.
now we can be. You were saying so many words of wisdom, I just decided to okay. turn it on. <laughs> <laughs> okay, all right, we're on. I'm happy to be back. I get to hold forth. I wanted to start by showing you, it says begin with showing this picture. This is a great picture of, uh, this is a cover of um, Scientific American Mind, which has become a bona fide uh, uh, magazine in its own right. Grace, is that you? No. No, not Grace. I don't have my glasses. I have to take the glasses off and then I don't see. Um, anyway, a beautiful woman. And uh, it's, the article here is called uh, The Best Diet for Your Brain. So I brought it for a couple of reasons. First of all, I wanted to talk about what is the best diet. I mean, we, it, it is interesting. And... Uh, <coughs> Uh, and it says that say, to what's the best diet to stay happy and sharp, and you can see that it's a lot of fruits and vegetables and nuts, and uh, a couple of what look like sardines on the top. So, uh, and the the um, the general consensus is that the diet that you should eat is either the Mediterranean diet, the Okinawan diet where it's very little meat and very and no sugar and uh, uh, fish and uh, seaweed and uh, the Scandinavian diet, which is fruits and vegetables and nuts and seafood and very moderate amounts of meat and dairy and canola oil, which apparently is very good for you. And the Mediterranean diet, which is antioxidant-rich fruits and vegetables, and tells you which ones, and whole grains and legumes, and minimum lean meat and red wine. Uh, you like that one? No. No, it's the wine part. The, the wine part that you don't like. You're supposed to drink the wine? It says. Oh, okay. Good, good. Yeah, oh, good. <laughs> Spit it out <laughs> no, no, no. That, that, actually, the south of France, where that's their diet, I lived there for a while. Um, limited amounts of meat, a lot of fish, a lot of uh, vegetables, a lot of olive oil, a lot of olives, and a fair amount of red wine, I must say. So, uh, and they have the longest lifespan of all the European of the southern European countries. Apparently, some of the northern ones are good. But that was just, that was what you might call uh, a public, public affairs announcement. What I really wanted to take from this article is, uh, I, I read through the whole article about uh, why these are better for you than, the, uh, uh, than, say, very sugary things. And all the things that aren't good for you they consistently use the word inflammatory. They have an inflammatory effect on the body and on the mind, so that they are in some sense toxins to the body and the mind. And you see this beautiful picture. It's worth passing around just for the, can you not see the picture? I'll pass it around just because it's a beautiful picture. Um, that uh, what, what certain people eat actually is a toxin in the body. Someone did a very uh, uh, particular experiment 
it's, it's in that article of for 10 days, this person, he's a he actually, did not eat anything but food from McDonald's. That's all he ate for 10 days. Did you see that article? No, he didn't die on day 11. His father, this is, this is what I, I caught, his father was the researcher. His father's an epidemiologist. And I'm thinking to myself, his father let him do that. I'm not, you know. <laughs> and by the 10th day, he didn't feel good and he was lethargic. And they, they, but not only his report, they did uh, studies on the um, flora in his... Uh, in his gut, what are the bacteria in his gut, which were all terrible at that point. He was lacking a huge amount of the normal bacteria that you need to cause your body to keep digesting things and going along. So you think about that. And the word that, so first I thought about it and I thought about how to fix my diet, but I also thought about the word that inflammatory is, things that inflame your body are not good. And things that inflame your mind are also, I think, not good. Uh, I, I spent some time on retreat in this past month, and I realized what a salutary effect it is to sit quietly in a quiet place without phones ringing. That, you know, we're so used to phones ringing, and you know, a phone is a benign thing, or somebody could be phoning you to say something good, but a phone is anyway a startled. And, I mostly notice when I'm on retreat that after the second or third day, my body just feels better. It just, like it, it, it gets it, that nothing is suddenly going to startle it. And I think about, um, and I start to feel better. I think about the fact that when, uh, if I watch TV, I must say I do watch in the gym. I'm walking for a long period on the, on the, uh, on the uh, treadmill, plugged in, uh, and the, there's a TV, and there's a crawl on the bottom. So not only are you seeing all the stuff that's going on, but if you don't have enough input happening, it's telling you some other terrible things on the bottom, crawling along in the small print, so you should have more stuff processing. Just really difficult. Um, so I thought about talking about the things about uh, Dharma practice that uh, tend in the direction of non-inflammatory. And what came up for me mostly, well, I started actually with, uh, I, I've been thinking a lot about how the level of discourse in the political debates has gotten really tremendously elevated, not elevated, Loud. Elevated would be something else. <laughs> it's loud. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> maybe both ways. I read an article this morning about Sandra, uh, Sandra Radvanovsky, who's one of the major, major sopranos currently singing all over the world. And it's a big article about her own singing career and who she sings with and what her voice is wonderful at. And they were talking about uh, a scene in, uh, she's talking about being able to use the voice dramatically and she's saying, well, I have that scene in Maria Stewart where I'm singing with so-and-so, I've forgotten the name of the other soprano. She said, we're having an argument and we're really sh uh, screaming at each other, she said, uh, in words. 
She said, but it's still music. And I thought, ah, oh, it's still music. What we are hearing is not music. It's not, it's not at all, not for me, anybody. Anybody here gets picked up from that? or Just it's really been amazing to me how polarizing and vilifying and how to have a calm mind through the, I keep thinking, another eight months uh, until we finish with this. <laughs> you heard Mark do that, huh? <laughs> it was a, an uncensored, huh? <laughs> I'm sorry, dear, but it was funny. <laughs> I didn't mean to embarrass you. So uh, you know that Justice Scalia died, and this is what Ruth Ginsburg said. Ruth Ginsburg was his friend. They went to the opera together. Toward the, she wrote, Toward the end of the opera, Scalia Ginsburg, tenor Scalia and soprano Ginsburg sing a duet, and she makes up the words, We are different, we are one. Different in our interpretation of written texts, one in our reference for the Constitution and in the institution we serve. For from our years together at the D.C. Circuit, we were best buddies. We disagreed now and then, but when I wrote for the court and received the Scalia dissent, the opinion ultimately released was notably better than my initial circulation. Justice Scalia nailed all the weak spots, the applesauce, and, quotes, and orgel borgle, quotes, and gave me just what I needed to strengthen the majority opinion. He was a jurist of captivating brilliance and wit with a rare talent to make the most sober judge laugh. The press referred to his energetic fervor or his astringent intellect or his peppery prose, all apt descriptions. He was eminently quotable, his pungent opinions so clearly stated that his words never slipped from the reader's grasp. He was described as, he, Justice Scalia once described as the peak of his days on the bench, uh, on evening at the, was uh, on the bench, an evening at the opera ball when he joined two national, Washington National Opera tenors at the piano for a medley of songs. He called it the three famous tenors. <laughs> He was indeed a magnificent performer. It was a good, it was my great good fortune to have known him as a working colleague and as a treasured friend. Is that sober? Is that lovely? Is that lovely? I, I, I know that I often bring up that um, verse in the Guide to the Bodhisattva's Way of Life, Shanti Deva. This is 8th century. 6th century maybe, commentary on uh, what are we doing in our practice? How are we refining our minds? And uh, this particular verse says, uh, it's about the whole of the chapter is about not letting anger arise un unconsciously or uncensored, uh, or not letting anger so becloud the mind. This is better not letting anger arising so becloud the mind that you can't see what's true. And he poses, the author poses in that whole chapter, all kinds of situations where 
you read it and you get mad, and you're just a reader now, uh, uh, one and a half millennia later. So, but still, one of the one of the verses is: suppose someone defames you, says something bad about your good name. Uh, I think about if it had, if I heard that someone was saying about me, or you heard that someone had said in a public way something about you that wasn't nice, and especially it wasn't true. Whoa. So Shanti Davis said, well, if somebody says anything, you should listen to it, because what if they're right? Maybe they're right, and maybe they're doing you a favor, and they're pointing out something to you that you had not noticed about yourself that you could now take under advisement, <laughs> And it would be helpful to you. It would be a teaching to you. You could be grateful to these people. <coughs> and he said, what if it's not true? He said, what if it's not true? What does it matter? I think, ah, how can he say a thing like that? It doesn't matter. Other people read, they saw, they thought. I have to, you know, every day in the New York Times, there's a whole uh, little section on the second page of corrections from the day before. And the corrections include something like, in the article about J.D. Hammersley having opened a new office and such and such, there were three M's in the Hammersley and there's just supposed to be two. I mean, the really correct a, a nothing kind of uh, mistake, but what if somebody says something terrible and it's not true? There are people saying terrible things every day in this election cycle that are not true. And you know, but and to and to really did I tell you about the my experience with watching uh, John Kerry respond to the Foreign Relations Committee meeting? Didn't tell you this. It's a very good story. I wonder why I didn't tell you. I was I was in New York. I'm sure I did. Anyway, I was I was in Washington D.C. And I was in Washington, D.C. with the Peace Alliance, so it would have been last September. And I was learning how to do lobbying with the Peace Alliance, which anyway is a bipartisan organization, which you could look up on, in the internet and uh, see what good work they do. And uh, the Peace Alliance visits different uh, Congress people in, in their office to lobby for certain legislation that they feel is in the direction of a more peaceful society. So in the course of the days that I was there, uh, I think it was I went to Barbara Boxer's office and she wasn't there just to sign that I was, you know, a, a, a person in her constituency was there. And the uh, uh, Receptionist said, why don't you go up to the Foreign Relations Committee meeting? It's in session right now. So I went upstairs, and it was really, I, I felt so excited about the fact that this really is a tremendously open country when you think about, I did have to go through a metal detector walking in the front door to get into the Congressional Office Building. But once you're in, just went upstairs, go down the hall, walk into this Foreign Relations Committee meeting, People sitting there, nobody even says, who are you? You go in and you sit down. And so here are a whole bunch of senators who are, and here's John Kerry sitting right facing them, just like it looks on TV. And I'm in a seat like two rows just behind him. And there's a whole contingency of people 
who have come then dressed in a particular way with, with signs that they have hidden that they'll suddenly whip up when the camera turns towards them. So there's an inflammatory irritant, in the, uh, an inflammatory constituency in the body. shouldn't have called them irritant. Take that back. Erase it. Constituencies. Inflammatory is also I should take out. But anyway, any kind of a sign that they're going to put up in a public meeting is meant to catch people's eye and make a little disturbance. Anyway, I'm sitting there, and different uh, senators pose questions. They have to have three minutes to pose. And some of the questions are actually questions, and some of them are two and a half minutes of a position paper on how the government has done it wrong. Uh, and if it weren't for the current president, this wouldn't be happening. And then the last 20 or 30 seconds is a nothing kind of a question. It's mostly a position statement. And I'm sitting a couple of rows back from the secretary, and I hear the question coming at him, and it's completely, uh, in my view, a hostile question. And I can feel that my heartbeat is getting more, and you know that I am getting uh, upset about what I feel is an attack. And I'm just sitting there. It's not for me. It's for him. And I see he's sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, sitting there. And then at the end of the time, he says. Who knows how he feels inside? I don't know about that. But what I'm saying is that what comes out of him is, uh, well, uh, you know, Senator so-and-so, the question, the statement that you made about da-da-da, da-da-da, that's actually not true. It's ABC, EFG. I'm just one little piece of it in all these things that he said. Listens very carefully, responds to the one thing that he can correct, but in a plain tone of voice, not even a put down tone of voice. And I thought, ah, he has nerves of steel. Well, of course, he's been in this business for a very long time, and maybe he does have nerves of steel. But the ability to have stuff come in and listen to it judiciously, is he right, is he wrong? What is necessary to comment on? What is not necessary to comment on? And then the hearing proceeds peacefully. And I thought, wow. You know, it's not just in our own small lives that I, I, I feel attacked or I wonder about whether or not to respond, but the ability to listen and respond. So when Ruth Ginsburg says, if I circulated a, a, an opinion and it came back with his corrections in it, I corrected it. And I valued him as a friend. She, in other words, she could learn from him. From him, yeah. You probably have had this. This is going to seem maybe, maybe ordinary, but I, I, I was reading this, putting this together yesterday, and I suddenly had a memory that I know is forty years old, maybe forty-five years old. I always subtract from where I am now, but it was one of the one of the first times that my husband and I. Uh, had children old enough to leave and had a, a reason. We went to a scientific conference that he was attending in Europe. And then after that, we went on a trip up through Norway. And we were not so savvy in terms of being world travelers at that point. And, uh, it, it, and we didn't want to go on a tour. 
but uh, we did sign up with a travel agent that put together a tour and you start here and then you take an airplane to here and then you'd get on a ferry and you go to there and then you spend two nights in such and such a hotel. And so we, and you get a, a triptych with all the things and all the tickets and all the hotels. And so we start out and after day two or three, we see some of the same people are getting on all the same flights and buses and they're showing up in our hotels. So it was a really lovely way. Clearly it was a tour without a tour leader. They had all the tickets and you had the stuff. It was very nice because you didn't have to, it sounds terrible, you didn't have to deal with other people. <laughs> it was as if you were traveling with yourself on a honeymoon or something. But the same people kept showing up. And at some point, halfway through, we made friends with a couple that seemed to be just like we were going to be 40 years later. They were much older than we. Their children were almost as old as we were at the time, grown-up people. And uh, uh, this, this man was a physician in, uh, in, uh, in Indiana, a uh, physician in Indiana. His wife, I think, was a, a school teacher. They, and they seemed so much like us. They were interested in world affairs, and they, uh, they had the right attitudes about different kinds of, from our point of view, the right attitudes about it. You see where this is going to go. We get friendlier and friendlier, and we're talking to each other, and they start to give us clues. They've been all over the world. They say, so when you come into a town uh, on this kind of a thing, and you know there's other people on the tour, be sure to be the first people to jump off the boat and go up to the hotel. You know, we're in an unpopulated area of Norway because you're going to get the best room. And he had all these little pointers of how to make your trip better and what to do this and what to do that. We felt like it was like a private tutorial on how to be like them. And he, was, he had such a good attitude we remembered about treatment. He, he said, if people can't pay for their services, I see them for free. They were, whoa, what a really nice person. And somewhere near the end of the retreat, uh, the retreat, the end of the trip, came up in the conversation how disappointed they were that Barry Goldwater had not won the election. <laughs> and I remember, you know, this shows you how naive I was, you know. I remember, like, my mind, like, a, like, like your car stalls on the freeway. <laughs> Because all of a sudden, a person I liked everything about them. And it was impossible that that should come out from them. I hope nobody here voted that, that if a Barry Goldwater is offended. Because it was my fault. I'm telling this actually about my inability to get it. That people who are perfectly nice could vote differently from the way that I do. That it, you know, that... Uh, I say that something you know. Sometimes when uh, when there's a uh, <laughs> when there's an election in November and I'm teaching the Thanksgiving retreat, I used to say to people <laughs> after the after the silence had been installed and you're just sitting where you're sitting with who's ever sitting around you, I said, think about the fact that the person sitting next to you might have voted exactly different from how you did, you know, and everybody suddenly look ah. <laughs> Like it would pollute up the area or something. But I remember the, that, um, I remember feeling uh, that my mind had to like juggle itself 
to make room for that to go in and fit and reorganize itself. It's so much easier to say there are good guys and there are bad guys. I, I notice that now in this election. Uh, I don't listen very much because it is inflammatory. That's why I was interested in the word inflammatory. I'm th- I, don't, I don't listen to the people who have my opinion and the people who have the other opinion because it's all pretty inflammatory at this point and the whole news presentation is inflammatory. Do I want to talk about that? No, no, I don't want to talk about that. I was going to sit... I can't not do that. I said earlier... Why do I not want to do it? Because I don't like to electioneer and I don't like to say things about this or that. But there are two networks that have just the opposite point of view and the same event presented by Network A is presented entirely different or understood by Network B. There is, however, Network C that some people can get on their um, cable. Uh, Al Jazeera, is, which, which broadcasts from Doha, has very good worldwide coverage of what's going on. And I realized, I turned it on for a couple of minutes this morning, which is where I saw that doctor start crying about the little girl in the pink sweatpants with the Mickey Mouse on them and the white boots. Um, and the, I heard about what's going on in Yemen, what's going on in Libya. For all the what's on TV, it, it seems like we don't hear anything but the the the, uh, the election mm-hmm. and who's doing what. And it sounds like a football game. Yep. Who's winning? Who's making up a little yardage? Who's losing the yardage? And I thought about, I, I, I don't know why I didn't want to talk about it, because I don't want to be like a haranguer. But I feel like, um, I feel like I wish someone would turn down the volume and the speed. I don't know if anybody can say, so let's really talk about this. The other thing is I think that it's just so easy to get uh, addicted because it's like a it's like a game. It's, it's like a it's not like there are lives and planets, our planet hanging in the dist, in the in the in the issue. Okay, just let that go. That was demoralizing little side issue, but that's what I thought about anyway. <coughs> <laughs> I, I made a note to myself that I made a good friend. The last time I went on one of those, um, a week of seeing Wagner operas, I haven't done this a million times in my life, but I have done it five times. And I will do it again in May. I'll go to Washington. The people who like doing it, to see a ring cycle, yeah. The people who show up, the same people show up all the time. It's like deadheads. They just follow it around all over. As a matter of fact, one of my, one of my friends who shows up, a woman in Santa Fe at all of these, her, uh, her email is ringhead at gmail.com. So, and she is the, uh, the president of the Santa Fe Wagner Society. So the same people show up. 
And they tend to be an older crowd because, first of all, I, not so many young people have the Wagner connection and have a week of expendable time and funds to go someplace. And I made a good friend with a couple, a man and his wife, about my same age, really. Uh, and we met at a couple of ring cycles, maybe two years apart. I was so impressed with this person, person this man's extremely good manners and courte courteousness and thoughtfulness. And uh, just th there are more women on those trips than men. And being so courteous with all the women and opening doors and holding hands and helping them in, especially old women. And it wasn't until we were way into that experience together that I discovered that at the same time that I was uh, walking on Market Street pushing babies and baby buggies in anti-war demonstrations, he was a um, general. He'd been um, uh, promoted to general in the Air Force because of the number of airstrikes he'd done bombing Vietnam, a number of bombing missions over Vietnam. And I suddenly realized that he and I, at the same time, he was bombing Vietnam and I was marching in anti-war movement. And I didn't like him less. It was, it was 50 years later, 40 years later. And he was who he was then and I, was, I am who I am now. And who knows what made him be that and me be me. He had parents, I had parents, they had different points of view. And the, 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 the terribly difficult chore, I think, is to remember that everybody got to be whoever they are for, because of whatever happened to them and take it out of the realm of good and bad. I can, you know, I can think this was a sad day in the history of humankind. Uh, I, I, I just looked over at Marty and I thought about Marty's father who died last August, was a leading light in the civil rights movement. I mean, he was a co-founder of CORE. His name was George Hauser. If you look him up on Google, he's got an enormous amount of stuff on Google. And he was really, uh, he was a lovely man, and he did lovely things. Now, the, the other man that I met, going to the opera, in my view, he hadn't done lovely things, but who knows what his parents were and who he came from and what people taught him. Why do you think George Hauser got to be who he was? His parents? That was a big contributing factor. Yeah. yeah. His parents were missionaries, weren't they? Or clergy. 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 Yeah. Yeah. spent early years uh, in the Philippines where they were missionaries. Yeah. So there was a wide world view that he grew up with. This is a very important time for me to say a piece of my own thinking. This is like <laughs> I'm laughing because I'm thinking people like Joe have seen me over 20 years. Uh, I usually have the same opinion forever. This is the second time today I've said I'm changing an opinion. Uh, I'm not, I made the opinion change earlier that we should sit quietly and not meet each other in between. I changed that already. 
now I, now I find myself telling you that I find that I am changing very fundamentally the way I'm talking about mindfulness these days. I, I'm putting much more emphasis on the end of the sentence. This is a sentence. Mindfulness practice is moment-to-moment -moment awareness of what's arising, what's happening around us and within us as a response to that perception in an attempt to create and cultivate poise to see that fully so as to be able to respond with clarity and conviction for the benefit of all. I, th I really have changed from, I, I, I don't know if I've changed that much, maybe you say, oh, you always said that, but I don't think I always said that. I think that for a lot of years we said it's the ability to be aware from moment to moment what's arising and how we're responding in it. And I think that the really crucial part of it is we're doing that in order to see what is called for, to behave wisely. So wisely in a generic way, in the way that texts usually talk about it, is not to create suffering. And we might have ideas sometimes about different things that are political moves or policy moves that this might or might not create suffering. But at least if we talked on the level of towards what end and what will we do with this, and had the appropriate grounding. I talked to my friend, I talked to my friend Cliff, Cliff Saren about that this week, so I should really include him in this. By the way, are any of you coming next Sunday to that day long? It's gonna be terrific. No, it's gonna be fantastic. Terrific actually isn't a good word, it means full of terror. <laughs> it's been misused forever, but it isn't gonna be, it's gonna be fabulous. Um, and Cliff, who's a major mindfulness researcher, has, and a good friend of mine, we've been talking about it a lot, about that as it has come into, uh, as mindfulness has become more and more uh, generic in Western practice and universal, it's everywhere, the, the emphasis has been on knowing what's happening and knowing what's happening. So you're really alert. And it does not necessarily uh, lead to uh, kind behavior. That you might say, if you just said mindfulness is knowing what's happening and being uh, awake and uh, uh, poised in the moment, you could be a safe cracker. You could be a gambler in Las Vegas. You could be a second story burglar. You could be a lot of things. You could be defending a criminal who you know to be a criminal in a law court because you're very alert and, and uh, you know what you want and you're figuring out everything. That the fact that uh, I often say, and I'm really being careful about this, I hope this doesn't now go out on a tape and the whole world defrocks me. And, uh, the <laughs> I don't think so, obviously. Uh, that um, Dharma Seed says we're finished with you. I don't think so. Because, but I think that really that the part that I add 
that when I, I often say, when my mind is clear, I behave kindly. And isn't it, don't you think that's true about you? When your mind is clear, you're really more careful not to hurt people's feelings, to do things that hurts your feelings if you actually make a mistake and hurt somebody. But we are, without being an elitist about it, if you're all here in this Buddhist seminar week after week, we all come from the kind of people who think that being kind to other people is a nice thing to do and the cause of happiness and a good way to live a life and that, it's, and that justice means something. I mean, I, don't, I, I think that we all do. We're not neutral about how we ought to be. We might actually all vote differently because I also think that in the case of um, my long ago, long, long, long ago traveling companion Garvey or uh, uh, Justice Scalia, a person could have different opinions than I do and be a decent person with having arrived at a different point of view. And that really what we're talking about is, well, that's two different kinds. I have to think more carefully because uh, the question of why did George Hauser become committed to that? Uh, because his parents were committed to kindness and goodness. And you are, because your father was. And most of us are moved by kindness and goodness. Is it? Don't you think that? I'm stopping. Do you think that? Because <laughs> maybe I talked myself into a corner and you have a way of seeing what's wrong. Nancy, what? father and you're looking for reasons why people become the way they are. My husband has a brother who is 18 months difference in age, 18 months older, and during the Vietnam War, um, my husband's brother Joel was a helicopter pilot in the Air Force in Vietnam, while my husband was a conscientious objector serving mm -hmm. his time at a Quaker boarding school in Ohio. How do you how could the background, how could their upbringing lead to two such divergent things? And the thing is, it did not harm their relationship. They are uh, close and loving then and close and loving now. I act, this, is a, this is a very important part. Thomas Merton was a, um, uh, Thomas Mer it is Thomas Merton, whose brother whose father, I, no, 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 I'm mixing up two stories. No, 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 no. Uh, James Carroll, James Carroll, who uh, is now best known for being a novelist and a columnist for the Boston Globe, uh, was for a period of years in his 20s a Paulist priest and very much involved in the peace movement. And his father was a general and his brother, was active as a military person, and their family got together always and stayed together. And uh, I think when you love somebody, when you love somebody, their particular, like they vote this way or this way, is surrounded by the fact that you love them, that your mind is at ease about them. Ah, this is getting me to exactly where I wanted to be before the end of the time. So let me make sure, think about it, because we'll come back. I want to talk about it a little bit. What I really wanted to talk about, and I think this is the lead into it, thank you very much, here it is, is I think that it's not so much a different message, is 
in the presentation of the message, if it's presented frighteningly, um, then the mind reacts to it and uh, can't hear it. Can't hear, for instance, that this other person, person has their own view and that they're not a bad person because they're your father or they're your brother or uh, they're your... Uh, my cousin in San Francisco votes exactly opposite from the way I do, but we love each other a lot. So when we talk about politics, we talk not so much because it wouldn't work. It wouldn't work for me to have my point of view because it's not that she's a bad person. She grew up with parents who believed a certain way about how government should behave, and I grew up with parents who believed another way that government should behave, and I really love her, so we just don't go there. That, that's all right. This is what it says in the Vinaya. This is what it says in the Buddhist um, uh, book of uh, guidelines for Buddhist for Buddhists, and particularly for Buddhist monks. But I think I have a sign of this in my house, framed. In due season, before admonishing anyone, one should reflect thus. In due season will I speak, not out of season. Uh, you know, in, in daily life between myself and, say, my partner, I might say to him, uh, sweetheart, I have to talk to you about something that's really important. Is now a good time, or when do you want to talk? So, number one, you don't fall, you give them a choice. And besides, I preface that with sweetheart. I'll talk to you. So <laughs> it's different if you don't say that. Um, in truth will I speak, not in falsehood. I think it would be a fabulous thing if someone invented a, uh, a, a light that if it shined on people, it would, it would come up, for, a bell would ring if they told an outright lie. You know, so like Pinocchio. So that every time somebody said an outright lie, it would go ding dong, ding dong, ding dong. Because you'll notice that the discourse uh, in, so to speak, debates or whatever, is not, is, is, uh, is, um, there's no time really to say that's completely not true. You know, that when I watched John Kerry, he sat and sat and sat until the end of this person's presentation. Then he said, you know, that fact you gave about X being Y, it's actually Z is A. It was just in, in such a, it's just a fact. It's Z is A, so you make it correct. In truth will I speak, not in falsehood. Gently will I speak, not harshly. That's what I thought about the most when I was, uh, I read some headline in the paper. Uh, <laughs> I'm not even going to say it. I, I subsequently heard it on TV. It's a you know a terrible thing to say about a person, and somebody running for high office said it about somebody else, uh, and it's just a, a really terrible insult. And nobody says, you know, this is supposed to be grown-up discourse. Uh, we don't do this after the second grade schoolyard. Actually, in the second grade schoolyard, we call this bullying, and we have workshops to teach people not to do it. Uh, gently will I speak, not harshly, because I think what happens is that when it's harsh, my mind gets frightened, 
and I can't hear anything. And the person becomes a terrible person uh, and my enemy. Whereas uh, I was talking to Cliff the other day. We were planning our, our, our workshop for Sunday. Barbara's going to play the cello. It'll be really lovely, I think. Um, and he said, you know, I wouldn't say it just this way. I might say it this way because you don't really know that. I said my usual thing about when the mind is clear, the heart is, my heart is open. He said, that's just because it's you. And I thought to myself, huh, it's not because it's me. It's all of you, too. It's the kind of people who grew up in households where kindness and niceness and thoughtfulness was, why are you saying no? You didn't have that? How many people, well, here we go. No, I'll come back. With, no, this is very important for me to learn. How many people did not grow up in an atmosphere of kindness and niceness? Not everybody. Okay. Insulting? Yeah. My parents to each other. Yeah. Yeah. But at a very high volume. But the criteria was nobody threw anything, nobody hit anybody, and then they would stop and it would go away. You know, they'd behave normally, and they didn't do it towards the kids. So I don't know. There was both. That's interesting. Maybe my people are unusually subdued. Yeah. It's very hard to about there. Yeah, that that was what I was thinking because if people are hollering, you know, uh, you can't hear it. Um, so I'm interested for somebody. How about how about your household where you grew up? Yeah. But did you, when you were a child, were you thinking about, thank goodness I have this type of mother? Yes. <laughs> and I avoided my father because I knew when, he, I mean, he would scream and yell all the time, but he was very patient. Yeah. And, you know, would have a trigger, very trigger temper, so there was a lot of avoidance. Fortunately, he was the kind of man who didn't think that fathers should have a lot to do with their daughters, so I wasn't burdened with them a lot. <laughs> so it was my mother who was very, very powerful. I'm glad to hear that. Tell me your name. My name is Maja. Maja? Uh -huh. I'm glad you're here. Please come again. My, my thing was uh, there was a lot of punishment and everything. Really? I knew my parents loved me, but yeah. But they had all the right politics. Yeah. <laughs> they had all the what? Right politics. They had all the right politics. As was I, you know, but that's really, I mean, so probably was Marty, listening to Paul Robeson records when you were young. Yeah, but what I would say is that it's a rough ride for everyone. Yeah. I, I mean, I have been up and down and all over the place in my growing up years, and everybody has experiences uh, somehow or other finding your ground where you feel solid and feel that uh, you are able to love, that you have somehow or other been loved, 
in it may not be your parents mm -hmm. it may be but somewhere if you're going to be able to be generous and give good out you have to have experienced it mm -hmm. somehow and I, I don't think it's just the nuclear family yeah. that that's where people right. find it. A lot of times people find another way. But I want to go back to something Madhya said about uh, distinguishing, uh, uh, first of all, being able to figure it out. Uh, for the mind to be clear about it, when if it's too loud, then the mind gets... I think we startle when things are too loud. Uh, I think that's why people shout when they... Uh, when they get upset because they feel they're not getting heard. Yeah. Okay, good. <coughs> oh, there you go. So I come from one of those uh, less functional families. They did the best they could. But had I not grown up as sensitive as I did and be around that, you know, Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body. Yeah. I wouldn't be sitting here. I wouldn't have been drawn to the spiritual path. And I've gotten so much more back, infinitely more than just relieving my personal pain. So, you know, for me, karmically, having those parents was perfect. Actually, that's a lovely thing to say in the, in the long run. It's what we got, you know, that, uh, which is a kind of a Zen answer. So I have to bring swimming into it. Yeah. <laughs> Just this morning, I just had the greatest experience because I was swimming. I got in and it was dark, so I had a light on my head, a light on my wrist. Um, it was almost like when I was coming in, I had a rhythm of looking around. Um, but right when I had my head down, all of a sudden, I just like, boom, crashed into somebody or somebody crashed into me. And just, I think partly because I knew I was coming up here, so I was already in a different place. And partly because of an example, there are some people that no matter how beautiful it is, they're toxic afterwards and it should have been this way it should have been that way and I could imagine right away the chatter of that jerk ran into me da 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 and <laughs> but it was so quick and it was it was truly a startle you know it's dark it's You're a little choppy and I'm literally hit in the chest and the head by a swimmer coming at an angle and it could have gone any direction but I just loved we both just stopped and we were like how are you are you okay <laughs> So no blame, no judgment, just concern for the other person. And it was so absolutely beautiful, and I'm so aware of how it could have gone a different direction. Oh, thank um, you very much. You may, if you don't know Nancy, you would not know that she swims every day in San Francisco Bay. <laughs> that's, a, that's another audible oh. <laughs> as, a, as an ongoing commitment for her own body, it's therapeutic for her, and that she's got a whole program of teaching... Uh, Say it in 60 seconds. Go ahead. Well, it's to encourage healthy lifestyle and nutrition with Native Americans. So once a year, I bring groups from Indian reservations. They literally immerse in healthy lifestyles and tradition during the week because they swim in the bay, and they finish their week with a swim from Alcatraz to shore. So just like this morning, the swim is a reality, but there's so many metaphor yeah. ways that we can relate to it, too. I think By that's under way, six. Those people, those people who swim from, they all swim from Alcatraz to San Francisco, and some of them start the week not knowing how to swim. So it's, uh, I want to tell you the two last things on this list. There are five things to consider. This is very good for me, this, this discussion. I'm going to come into Monday a lot wiser because I am 
Ha, ha, ha. I'll work it out. How many, you all remember, I'm not going to tell you this long story, but you remember I told you a story about how someone helped me uh, with my suitcase in an impossible situation on my trip home from France after my husband had been very sick. And I spent a whole year teaching about how moved I was that people are so kind that uh, I didn't even have to ask for help. This person saw I'm an old woman, I'm pulling a heavy suitcase, big flight of stairs, and he took it out of my hand, and he said, I'll help you, madam, and he carried it up. I, and I talked about how people just naturally respond to need. A year later, I am the same old woman with a big suit, same big suitcase, going, uh, getting on a train in uh, Paris to go a few stops, and uh, another man says, I'll help you, madam, and picks up my suitcase and puts it down in the train in front of his accomplice, who I don't know is his accomplice, so that in the next stop, as the train lurches around a corner, the accomplice coughs in my face, which I turn instinctively away from. The door opens, he gets out, I look down, and my, my purse is open, and my wallet is gone, and my passport is gone, and everything is gone. And they both said the same thing, I'll help you, madam. And so my whole year of saying that people are naturally good, I had to really take, take the story out of the, out of the library and say, some people are naturally good. Other people are not so naturally good, or they're naturally ungood. And some people, Jean Valjean being another example of that, could be even in otherwise good circumstances, good people who, if their children are starving, might steal from somebody. And who knows who does that? And I think really the answer, if I, if I was going to be really thoughtful, is that all I know is that it's possible for the mind to be focused and, pre and poised. I don't actually know how it's going to manifest, you know? Maybe, maybe for the good, if people in their life experience are primed to act for the good. I tend to think that it's probably more that true than not true because we still are human beings on the planet and we do have this uh, instinctive care for our progeny and I think for other people's progeny, I think. But not always. There are terrible examples. Here are these young children fleeing. Yeah, Madhya. I think one of my teachers would say that people are naturally good, but they don't always behave that way. <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> you know, and, and people who are born with difficult, confused neurology, or they don't have the right diet, or they're not, they're not brought up right, or, I mean, they're not nourished right in their body, don't develop a mind that has self-control. Who, it's not who knows. Some people know more than other people. But for myself, the answer is that I could be a little bit less dogmatic. The last two of those, in due season will I speak, not out of season, in truth will I speak, not in falsehood, gently will I speak, not harshly, for this person's profit will I speak, not for their loss. So it means I'm not doing this for some exploitive reason. And with kindly intent will I speak, not in anger. Uh, Where's that from, Sylvia? It's from the Vinaya. It's the monk's rules of conduct. It's the Vinaya 2... Uh, chapter verse 9 or something. I think that's it, actually. I just looked it up yesterday. 
Who would like that? I have five of them. I thought somebody's going to want that. Would you like one? Come, give one to Madhya. She's behind you. I'll give you all five. Here you go. You can give it out. Take it. Take a picture and put it online or something. Did you get one? Okay, there you go. Uh, there you go. When I, if I think about it, each of those is, uh, it, you know, it's from from the uh, from the you know worldly to the most minute. I'm very careful. You are probably too. Uh, <laughs> You always leave the mail strewn over this table. <laughs> you don't always leave the mail. <laughs> you often leave the mail strewn over the table. I wish it weren't. You never come home when you say you're going to come home. Yes, they do. Sometimes they do. <laughs> so, and that goes under the, you know, in truth will I speak, not, you know, nothing is really... It is so nice to be back. I'm really happy about that. So come on, come on Sunday if you can. Uh, Barbara's going to play uh, her cello uh, throughout the day. And uh, if you can't, then I'll tell you about it next week. But I will be back next week. And I'm very interested in what do we really know and what is folklore. Uh, you know, if... Uh, I really am going to think it through because I can't say my thing again anymore about when the mind is clear, uh, my natural good heart. No, I can. No, no, no. That's true. When my mind is at ease, my natural goodwill manifests itself. But it's dependent on having natural goodwill. Now, what's, what, what's, what's not so clear is if everybody has natural goodwill. <laughs> So how about that for a homework? Think about that. You think people have natural goodwill? I don't know. Some. Most. Some. Yeah. Little little children who are two, three. They're they're. They have a lot of goodwill. They're happy, they're cheerful, they're open, they're wanting to be with people, but we get contaminated, I think. There are often, there are often studies quoted about in preschools when two or three-year-olds, if somebody falls down and starts to cry, other people pick up a toy and run over with it. So, you know, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be pretty okay about thinking most people, if they if they if they hear and they see and they're not in pain and they ate enough uh, and they're not sick, probably would do that. But there's so many things, so many things. And there's a lot of ch childhood wounds and trauma. There is that can shift that or get them off track. And there's a, and and people have an amazing. Also think, I think people are amazing in their capacity 
to heal. And sometimes not. And why some people recover from trauma and other people don't. It's all very mysterious. I don't think that makes a difference in how any of us individually lives their lives. Anyway, I'm happy to be back. And uh, I'll look for you next week. We'll be here. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.